Uh, my name is Steve Hofflin. I'm an elder here at Hillside. And my privilege is this morning to read Paul's greetings to the church in Ephesus. Um, and so from the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. If you guys have your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn in them to Ephesians chapter 1? This morning we are going to be in verses 1 through 3, which Steve just read for us. Um, we are beginning a new series this morning in the book of Ephesians that uh, we've subtitled God's Plan for God's people. Um, and I am so excited about this study. In fact, for me, Ephesians was actually the book of the Bible that really sort of made God's word come alive to me in my younger days. And so it's landed in one of the favorite categories. Um, and here is something that's just so true about the book of Ephesians. There's so much hope and joy and practical calling inside of this book. I've said this before to you. I hesitate to say it too many times because I'm afraid that you guys might disappear. But we're going to be in the book of Ephesians actually this entire school year. And some of you might be thinking, well, I'm looking at my Bible and it's Ephesians is four pages. How are you going to do that? Well, um, watch and see. Uh, but we, we're going to stop for, in October, we're doing our GO conference, which is a missions conference, which will be the end of October and the first two weeks of November. Um, we will stop for that. We'll stop during Christmas and then also during Easter. But otherwise, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians and take our time through it. And here is why. Ephesians is so rich and it is so deep. And every word seems to be packed with so much for God's church. Um, I actually read one commentator this summer as I was studying for this series, and he said this, pound for pound, uh, Ephesians may well be the most influential document in history. And uh, that's just one quote, but there were so many from so many commentators that just made it sound like, whoa, we got to study this book in a deep way. It's a big statement, but I want us to know that um, I truly believe this, that when we go to God's word and we spend time in our study in this epistle, I think that our lives will be changed. And um, the, the question for us as we go to this book is not going to be, what do we do with this letter, but what is it going to do with us? And just so we're clear, that question is actually a question that we should be asking as we go to the Word of God every time. When we go to God's Word carefully, when we go to it reverently, when we go to it in prayer to meet with God, God will meet with us and He will change us for His glory. This morning, I want to start in the book of Ephesians, really just kind of at first by stepping back and getting sort of this wide overview of Ephesians. And in order to do that, I want to begin with just a little bit of historical context. That, and, and the first two things are just very, very obvious. We know from the first two verses of Ephesians who the writer is of this letter. It's Paul. He said, I, the apostle Paul, in the very first verse. 
And he also said is writing to Christians or the saints that are in Ephesus. So we know who the writer is and who he's writing to. I'm not sure that this is super important for you, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. There are many scholars who believe that Paul was actually writing to several different churches in Asia Minor, and Ephesus just happened to be the biggest city in the biggest church. But here's what we should know about Ephesus, which Paul says he's writing to. The city of Ephesus is what is now modern-day Western Turkey. And so picture this busy port city. In fact, it was the fourth or the fifth largest city in the world at the time. And inside of Ephesus, there was a massive amphitheater that held uh, over 25,000 people. So think big, especially in that day. They were also known for hosting their own version of the Olympics. And the only reason I tell you that is just so you know, it was a large city with a lot of entertainment. It was at the junction of four major roads in Asia Minor, and so it was considered the gateway of Asia. And so, boiled down again, it was a large city. It was a very diverse city. There were lots of different people and different kinds of people there. Another thing that I think is important for us to know as we get our bearings before we get into the book of Ephesians is that we need to know from history that Ephesus was steeped in spiritual warfare. So it's a big city, but it's steeped in spiritual warfare. What do I mean by that? Well, the city was widely known for multiple forms of paganism. Some of them were sophisticated forms some were just flatly immoral. On the sophisticated side of things, many people in Ephesus, they just worshiped education. It wasn't just a learning thing that they worshiped, though. They devoted themselves to learning devoid of God, meaning that they embraced the Greek notion of true enlightenment, which involved rising to high levels of mysterious knowledge. That was the sophisticated form of the things that these people worshipped that were pagan. There was spiritual warfare even in their education. On the immoral side of paganism, I'm just going to say it as plainly as I can, they worshipped sex. They just did. There is still a sign in modern day uh, Western Turkey um, from the time of Ephesus that pointed the way for sailors who were coming into the port city to find the brothel. It's well documented in the history books that Ephesians, really just Roman culture, was steeped in materialism, mysticism, sensuality, and perverted idolatrous practices. I think another important detail for us to know is that Ephesus was the home to the Roman emperor cult. Really just meaning this, the people worshipped the emperor. Caesar Augustus was spoken of as the savior. His birth was hailed as the beginning of good tiding to the world. And so every coin and statue and many of the temples and other items in Ephesus, what they did was they proclaimed the gospel of Augustus, meaning that the people, and this is kind of important for us to hear, the people in Ephesus had ultimate hope in their government. Oh, there's some giggles out there, like that maybe it's relatable. Okay, one final... An important detail of life in Ephesus is that it was the headquarters for the cult of the Roman goddess named Diana or the Greek Artemis. The temple of Artemis was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens, and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the Greek world, ancient world. Diana was uh, worshipped through immoral encounters with prostitute priestesses, and Ephesus depended on Artemis worshippers and their annual festival 
to draw revenue into their city. You might be asking, okay, why do we need to know all of that information? Well, I want us to know this as we begin this series because I think that sometimes, and, and potentially this is just me, but sometimes we can come to the scriptures and we can believe that we are reading some sort of outdated letter that was written to some little village of mostly Christian people. And as a result, we believe that, well, the Bible applies to us. God's definitely speaking to us through the word, but it maybe doesn't understand our circumstances. And often I will hear people say something like this. Our world is so broken, and it is. I agree with that. But they'll say something like, I just wish it could be like the old days. And I, and I would agree that there have definitely been better times in our history but life without God is always going to produce life like what we are seeing that's happening in Ephesus at the time of this letter. And so we need to know this morning that God's word is not irrelevant to our day and to our time. God's word is living and active and it is so relevant to the church today. And I think that it's helpful for us to understand that Paul is writing to a church that was birthed largely in the midst of serious opposition to the gospel. And though few of us will move to a massive population center, and some of you are like, I will never, and I agree. I go to Sioux Falls, and I hate the um, traffic. So I hope I never move to a large population center. But those, most of us probably won't end up in a place like Ephesus in terms of population that's filled almost entirely with unconverted people. One thing we should be very clear on is we need to remember that like the church in Ephesus, we live in a culture that is filled with idolatry. We live in a culture that's filled with superstition and occult demonic activity and public sexual immorality and materialism and a love for education that is devoid of God and worship of political leaders. And so we need the encouragement of Ephesians. We need it. We need to have our eyes fixed on the reality of God's work in us and God's work in the church in the midst of what we live in. As believers, we need to hear what Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus because it is just so relevant to us. Let me share with us one more bit of information that I think will be helpful for us as we begin our study in Ephesians. That if you look at this letter, it can be broken in two halves. And here they are, first in chapters one, or the first half is chapters one through three. And in chapters one through three, Paul presents to us the doctrine, who we are in Christ, the reality of who we are in Christ. And then in chapters four through six, Paul states the duty of that reality, the duty of the believer. The duty section then ends with the description of the spiritual battle that happens for all of us in chapter six and how we stand in that. And so I want us to understand the context of this book, Ephesus, and I want us to understand the breakdown of this book, that it is always doctrine before duty for one very specific reason. Given what we know of the context of this book, that Ephesus was a worldly city with lots of lost people, and given the reality of the world that we live in, a world like Ephesus, some of us might want to believe that the answer to all of these issues that are happening in the world in Ephesus and that are happening here in our world is that Paul needs to tell Christians how to walk out their faith and fight the enemy and go out there and win. 
How do we get on the move? How do we destroy the enemy? How do we get out and change the world for the glory of God? We might think that that's the answer. But the flow of this letter is hugely important to us and to the people in Ephesus. Why? Because this flow is the solution to a works-oriented, legalistic ministry mentality that we often see in the lives of believers and churches who might emphasize duty first before we understand who we are in Christ, the doctrine. Here's what I mean, and here's why the flow of Ephesians matters so much. If we simply think through and bask in and meditate on the doctrine of what Christ has done for us, then the natural result will always be that we will find ourselves saying, because of what God has done for me and in me, I want to serve him. After I get the doctrine right, duty becomes not a demand for me, but a delight for me. And you may have been brought up in a church that every single Sunday when you went away, you were ultimately discouraged because somebody told you, you need to do this and you need to change this and you need to stop doing that. And as a result, what you find is you find yourself exhausted because what you're doing is you're relying on your good works to please God. And what the Bible does, and especially here in Ephesians, is it explains first the wonder of what God has done in Christ for you. God's goodness is always first. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, which Steve just read a minute ago, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't say, Blessed you guys for all that you've done for yourselves. Blessed be the God and Father of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Next week, we're going to study verses four through six. It says, He chose us, He predestined us for adoption. Those can be trigger words for some people in the church, but it's glorious. My point is this, our origin always matters. And so we should always begin with this, look at what God has done for me. See now what God has done. And so we cannot afford to read through the first half of Ephesians too quickly in order to get to this practical stuff about husbands and wives and employees and employers and kids and their parents. Because if we do that, then chapters 4 and 5 and 6, which have the practical stuff in them, they're going to feel burdensome and they're going to feel legalistic. And so this is the reason that we're going to slowly scale the mountain of God's grace and work to see who we are in Christ. As we jump into this series, I want us to know so, so clearly that the divine design of this book is first to sit with Christ in the heavenlies. Enjoy who you are in Christ. Ephesians 2, 6 says it like this. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. After we understand that, then Paul is going to share with us our calling to walk worthy of the vocation in which we have been called. And then after that, we're going to see that our calling is to stand fast against the enemy and I really don't mean to overstate this. I know that you guys probably are picking this up, but let me overstate it. The reality is this for a lot of us. All too often in our Christian lives, we reverse the order that God created for us. And so we think, if I just work hard for the Lord, then maybe one day we can rest in the heavenlies with Jesus. But we need to understand this. This is the most important part of what you are going to hear today a right biblical theology is always grace-oriented. 
always. Meaning this first, we rest in the reality of who we are in Christ because of the grace of God, and then we respond to him in our walk. Because of this truth, Paul actually opens up this letter in Ephesians today by celebrating the grace of God in his own life and then in the lives of his fellow Christians. So he joyfully begins Ephesians with what my Bible, I don't know what you have as a title, but my Bible calls it a greeting. But it's really more than just a greeting. Paul begins Ephesians with this song of celebration um, of God's work in himself and in the church. And so in the first three verses this morning, and really honestly for the next four weeks, we're going to be seeing reasons for us to celebrate the work of God in our own lives. Look with me first at verse 1, where we're going to be in verse 1a, where Paul says, uh, really says this. He sees the celebration of God's work in his own life. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Why does this statement matter as we seek to sit in the reality of Christ's work in our own lives? We can very quickly read a statement like this and say, Paul's just saying hello to the church and he's telling them who wrote it, right? We need to understand, though, Paul's background, because I think it will help us a lot with this statement. As a lot of us already know, Paul's given name was Saul. And Paul, when he was born, as Saul was born into the tribe of Benjamin, and his namesake was the first king of Israel, Saul. And so from the time he was a little boy, Paul was trained as a Pharisee under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He was on a path for extreme success in the Jewish world. I mean, think like he's working Wall Street, right? He's just making tons of money. He's doing well for himself. Everybody knows Paul, and he's raising or rising up in the ranks. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says this of himself, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age, of my own age, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. In Acts chapter 8, there's a story where Paul was a part of the Jewish leaders. He assisted the Jewish leaders in the killing of Stephen. And then after that, in Acts 8, it tells us that he ravaged the church. He was breathing out murderous threats on the church. The reason that I share all of this with you is you need to know he was anti-Christian. He was quickly rising in the ranks of Judaism. He was very successful. His life was comfortable. And from any worldly perspective, there would have been no reason for Paul to change his life. None. In Acts chapter 9, though, God's sovereignty intervenes in Paul's life. Look at Acts 9, verses 3 through 6. It'll be on the screen. It says this. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, whom are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. It's hard for us, I think, to imagine what happened to Paul in this scene because we can think of like electricity and lighting and sound systems and we think maybe somebody made that event up to scare Paul. No, He's pre-technology, and a light from heaven shines on him, blinds him, and he hears a voice, and it's Jesus. And he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Let me say something. Has anybody, first, has anybody ever had that exact experience happen to them? Right, okay, good. So we know that's pretty crazy. 
Let me say something that I think might be super obvious. But Paul was not dissatisfied with Judaism at this point in his life. He wasn't considering various religious alternatives. Instead, he was militantly opposed to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And then God intervened in his life. In other words, Paul didn't dramatically convert himself. Before his dramatic conversion, Paul was breathing murderous threats against Christians. And then we know this to be true. He went on to write 13 of our New Testament books of the Bible. That's an incredible transformation, isn't it? And so in Paul's first words of Ephesians, we need to see it as more of a greeting. He isn't just signing his name. He is celebrating and reminding us that God can radically change anyone. I mean, guys, if you think God can't change your life, read about every other Bible character in the Bible, but especially Paul. This is a celebration when he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. How did that happen? He's celebrating the reality that God can change anyone. Here you have a man who might formerly have been compared to a terrorist. And now by the will of God, he is writing much of the New Testament. What I want us to see this morning is this. In Paul's opening words here, he celebrates a self that has been liberated from the crushing bondage of his own ego. Paul wasn't the author of his salvation. Jesus was. And if you're a follower of Christ, while it is very unlikely that your conversion was just like Paul's dramatic conversion, you need to know that your calling is equally significant. Why do I say that? Because in Christ Jesus, every one of us has been delivered from the bondage of ourself and has been given a position and a purpose and authority in him because of him. And this is something for us to continually celebrate. One more really quick thing that I think that we need to see because of what we know of Paul is this. This message that Paul writes, it's not coming to us from some private individual acting on his own. This message isn't coming from a gifted teacher or a missionary hero. This message of Ephesians comes to us from God's appointed man. And so we need to hear Paul speaking in this letter, or when we hear Paul, we need to know that we are in fact hearing the message of God himself that God appointed Paul to bring. And I think this is vitally important when we come to the word, because one of the central errors in our thinking today is that we have the right to decide for ourselves what is the new way of what Christianity is or what the church is, and what the message of the gospel is. And the apostle Paul is saying the gospel is God's. He's the one that does it. It belongs to him. It is his message. He is the one who does the work. Nobody alters the gospel. And so Paul is saying, I am here as an apostle that was called by God to declare the gospel. So Paul celebrates what God has done in his own life. And then he moves on in in verses 1b and 2 to celebrate their gospel identity, the identity of the people that he is writing to. Look at verse 1b and verse 2. They say this, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul moves on in his opening celebration from what God has done in him to what God has done in the people that he's writing to. And he celebrates the church in Ephesus with a simple designation. I don't know if you saw this, but he calls them saints. 
He says to the saints who are faithful in Christ, this is worth us celebrating. Saint simply means apart, set apart or holy one. And something that I find really, really interesting is that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the only people that are ever given the name saint are God's people, Israel, and then sometimes angels. And so when Paul addresses the believers in Ephesus who were once pagan Greeks as saints now, he is clearly pointing to the miracle of God's grace in their lives. He is saying, by God's grace, you are a part of the family of God now. And we need to know that Paul isn't talking about some super spiritual group within them. He's not talking about a group that has achieved sinless perfection. He is calling every Christian in that congregation saints. He is saying, because you are faithful, meaning you are actively trusting in God, and because you are in Christ Jesus, you are saints. Peter actually uses very similar language in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the language of the first five books of our Bible. This is the language that the Old Testament uses to describe God's people, Israel. And Peter is saying this, and Paul is also saying this, just as God has called Israel to be his people, so he has called the church made up of Jews and Greeks and slave and free and male and female and men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and nation to be his people. This is the reality of being a follower of Christ. You were chosen. You are a saint. And so when Paul addresses the people of Ephesus as saints, he is saying, you are a part of God's family because of the work of Christ on the cross and because of what Christ has done in your heart. You are set apart by God. This truth has really great realities for us here today, and I really don't want us to miss them. One of the reasons that Christians can be so ineffective in our lives is because we really don't know who we are. We forget our gospel identity, or we think we're something special, and the reality is is God's the one that did it. So we suffer from gospel amnesia, really. And maybe you're saying this this morning, well, that word saint, that immediately rules me out. He couldn't be talking about me because saints are clearly some small elite group of people who have been doing a lot of really amazing things, and as a result, they've been canonized by the church. But according to the New Testament, this is not what a saint is. According to the New Testament, all Christians, everyone who has put their faith in Christ, young, old, rich, poor, wise, simple, are set apart in Christ by God for his sacred purposes and are thereby made holy They are put in standing before God on the account of Jesus' righteousness. And this is hugely important. Because externalized religion will always tell you that it is about you and that it's about what you do and it is about how well you do it. Religion is always about how well you do it. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is about the wonder of what Christ has done in me and on my behalf. Religion is about how well you do. Christianity is about what Christ has done in you and on your behalf. 
Our gospel identity is that we, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work, we are saints. And our gospel identity is a cause for celebration. Paul continues to celebrate the reality of our gospel identity by celebrating, and I'm going to tell you these really quickly, but two very fathomless truths. And for a second, we're going to try and fathom them. But verse 2, he said this, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might be tempted again here to think that Paul is just saying hi to the Ephesians. But we need to know that these words are so much more than just a greeting by Paul to the saints in Ephesus. He is intentionally celebrating the fathomless blessings to all of the saints. Hear this so clearly this morning. These words, grace and peace, are enormous because these two words celebrate how the gospel works in our lives. Grace and peace are immeasurable blessings that belong to all who trust in Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it like this, No two words are more important in the whole of our faith than grace and peace. Yet how lightly we tend to drop them off our tongues without stopping to consider what they mean. Grace is the beginning of our faith and peace is the end of our faith. Let's just stop for a second and consider these celebratory words that Paul uses. First, grace, and I know many of us know this, but I think we forget it. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is completely undeserved. It is wholly unearned by any of us. It is freely bestowed, and it is expensively purchased. There's nothing in us that calls God to bestow favor upon us. Nothing. And I know, again, that's not a new truth for a lot of you, but have you, do you consider that? There is nothing in you that causes God to bestow his grace upon you. It is freely given to us. It is freely bestowed upon us. God in his mercy simply extended it to us in Jesus Christ, but we have to know it was expensively purchased at the cost of the blood of his own son. And Paul is saying, I pronounce God's favor, his lavished favor, in Jesus Christ upon you. You haven't deserved it. You haven't earned it, but he has freely given it at the cost of his own son, grace to you. But he celebrates this twin reality. He says, it's not just grace to you, but it is also peace to you. And peace, and this is important, it depends upon grace, but peace means all the blessings that flow from God's grace. I'm not going to spend very much time on this at all, but we should know that peace isn't just simply the end of fighting as we often have in our minds. Peace has to do first and foremost with peace with God. And so if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are no longer under God's just condemnation. We have peace with God. Our consciences have been relieved because our sin has been dealt with and the penalty of sin has been dealt with. And so we have peace with God. But peace in the scriptures means even more than this. It also means that we experience the fullness and wholeness and satisfaction that no matter the circumstances of our life in this world, we can be at peace. It's that peace that passes understanding. And for the Christian, grace and peace, they're not just a greeting. They're exceedingly precious and worthy of celebration. And notice that Paul makes the point to say that these things are from God and our Father, the Lord, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, contrary to popular opinion, you cannot experience grace and peace outside of God. You can't. 
Those things are not in a new car. They're not in some idol. And Paul's telling these people in Ephesus that are experiencing a crazy world around them, the only grace and peace that you can have is in, your, in God, your Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way to experience the grace and peace of God, and it's in Christ. Paul here is celebrating the work of the gospel in the lives of the saints. Grace comes first, and it fills our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. But with grace is shalom, peace, reconciliation, wholeness. Peace is a direct result of grace. Let me just for a second ask you one question. Do you prize God's grace and peace above everything else in your life? I ask this because I believe that Paul starts Ephesians this way so that we would understand that these things are the joyful reality of every follower of Jesus. And we're invited to revel in God's grace and abide in his peace. And I have to say this. This is something that I've been working really hard at this week. Reveling in God's grace so that I can know God's peace. If you're a believer today, just consider the reality of God's grace in your life and the peace that comes with it. Prize those things. Prize them. Finally, and this, I'm going to be very quick here. Paul moves on in verse 3, and he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So verse 3 actually begins a very long Greek sentence that runs all the way to verse 14. And so in verses 3 through 14, they're actually just one sentence in the Greek. But I want to finish here this morning just really quickly and notice one thing as we begin this series. Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Notice with me the past tense of those words. God has already blessed us. If you know Christ, then he has already given you citizenship in heaven. And he is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him here on earth. God has already blessed us with more than we have acknowledged. And Paul is saying here, as he joyfully opens this letter, yes, let's celebrate what God has done in my own life. He's saying that. And he's saying, let's celebrate what God has done in your life. Let's celebrate your gospel identity. But let's also celebrate the reality that God is the one who's done it. Look at all he's done. Hear, hear this with me today. Our theology should always become doxology. Meaning this, the reality of what we know to be true should always cause us to worship God. Worship team, you can come on up. This morning and for the next few weeks, we're going to consider the blessings that we have in Christ as believers. And I want to leave us this morning with just one thing today as we leave this place. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you've put your faith in Christ, here's your homework. Rest in your gospel identity. Rest in your gospel identity. Here, here is the humbling and comforting truth of the gospel today. Your obedience doesn't initiate anything. 
Your obedience and mine, they only occur because God has initiated a redemptive process that resulted in your forgiveness and your transformation. Hear this so clearly this morning. God's love for you is not a result of your character. It is a clear demonstration of his. Let me say that again. God's love for you is not a result of your character. It is a clear demonstration of his. Rest in the identity that he has brought about in you. Multiple times this last week, well, in the last few weeks, and I always hesitate to share with you my heart because at some point you're all going to be like, that guy's a bad pastor. (laughs) Uh, But if you knew what was in my heart so many times, but I've asked myself this question. How do I love people better? How do I walk out my faith better? How can I honor God with my life better? Why do I feel like I have nothing to give people? And every single time that I've asked this question or questions like these have arised in my mind, or risen, arose, I don't know, in my mind, I hear, I'm I'm not making this up, I hear the Holy Spirit whisper to me the exact same thing every time. He says to me, Robbie, you need to know who you are in Christ in order to do those things. You need to rest in your gospel identity if you want to do those things. You cannot know how important the people of this church are, how important the people of Vermilion are, how important the people in your home are to me if you do not understand what I have done on your behalf. You need to stop and rest in the reality of your gospel identity. Know what I have done for you. Rest in my grace and my peace and you will walk out your faith because of that. If you do that in reverse though, if you try to walk out your faith without knowing what I have done for you, you are only going to burn yourself out. Watchman Nee in a book called Sit, Walk, Stand said this. Most Christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit, but that is a reversal of the true order. Our natural reason says, if we do not walk, then how can we ever reach the goal? What can we attain without effort? How can we ever get anywhere if we do not move? But Christianity is a strange business. If at the outside, at outset we try to do anything, we get nothing. If we seek to attain something, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. And so today, Ephesians opens with the statement that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Rest in your gospel identity today. Look at what the Lord has done. You and I this morning are invited to rest in our gospel identity and enjoy the grace and the peace that we have from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you again so much for your word. And God, thank you for the calling to do something that many of us struggle to do, and that is just to sit down and enjoy the reality of who we are in you. 
God, I know that many of us are thinking, yeah, but how do I love my neighbor? How do I love my wife? Or how do I whatever? And God, I think the answer is we rest in you. So Lord, this morning I pray that we would all be able to walk out of here understanding just a little bit better how wide and deep, just vast your love is for us and the things that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.